Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey, hey, everyone. James Azar here with the Sisal Talk podcast. Welcome to today's episode. It's a very, very special one for me. Um, it's with a dear, dear friend, uh, Laz Montano. He is the former CISO at Mass Mutual and someone who, when I first started in cyber in Atlanta, I met and his words still resonate with me until today. And so, Laz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. It's great to be here, James. It's great to be here with you see you again. It's nice, uh, <laughs> nice to be remembered. It's uh, well, I don't think you can be forgotten. For for folks who don't know anything about Laz, let me give you just a little bit of an introduction into the legend we have on the podcast today. So Laz's most recent role, what a lot of people remember him as, is the uh, CISO for Mass Mutual. But before that, he spent four years as the CISO at Voya, nine years in MetLife. Um, essentially going from IT risk governance to CISO. Um, you were the uh, second vice president of IT at City. You were at Travelers. And I mean, and the list goes on. Um, Laz has been doing this for a while, folks. So he's got uh, a ton of knowledge when it comes to this kind of stuff. He's also uh, been a, um, a board member with me at the NTSC before. Um, and Patrick Gall's amazing organization for CISOs holds many, many certifications. Today, he's a board advisor and a virtual CISO. So for those of you that are um, needing just a little bit of a guiding help, you're about to get that here for free on, on today's episode. But if you want more of it, you'll have to engage with Laz for that. <laughs> um, so, so Laz, a little bit, how, how'd you get started in security? I mean, what was your, your career path? Where did it all start? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's always funny to kind of look back because um, it wasn't a uh, flashbang event. In fact, it was quite uh, interesting because I happened to be doing a consulting gig. I was actually between my days at Citigroup Travelers 
And I was there for a, a, a divestiture uh, that was going on with Citigroup and Travelers and so forth. And I was actually doing a network gig. So not security at all, not related to anything uh, that I'm currently doing or have been doing for so many years. And um, through a very, very tragic uh, situation, the uh, CISO at uh, Travelers passed away. And uh, that weekend, in fact, before I went home that weekend, we had talked. Um, he was a big supporter in helping me getting all the, the transition because I was still a consultant uh, pretty much at that point. And about two, three weeks later, uh, my contract was coming due and I was actually transitioning. So I came in as an interim to help out with uh, the transition from now, not just the networking piece, but then the CISO work. And then actually got cut my teeth uh, as a CISO uh, under the Citigroup uh, program, which, you know, by all accounts was very, very well established. They had a lot of real formal uh, policies, framework policies, all, all that stuff kind of well-baked. Uh, and for me, it was basically uh, trial by fire. And, you know, from there, I just uh, never turned back. And, and here I am. And now here you are, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you've survived, you know, they say an average CISO survives in an organization 18 to, to 24 months on average. That's why when, when people always ask me, when I go to be a CISO for a startup, they'll say, Hey James, what's your title? I'm like, not CISO, anything but that, anything but I was like, I'll be a chief coffee maker. You can call me, um, you know, security guru, call me evangelist. Just don't give me the title that gives someone an 18 to 24 month kind of time frame. Why do you think that is, though? Why do you think s- predominantly today that that CISO time frame is is shorter than a congressman? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of factors that play into it. Um, you know, it, because of the nature of the role, and because uh, more and more CISOs are at the crossroads of whatever significant innovations taking place. Um, they're going to come under fire from a lot of different directions. The business, the technology folks, you know, everyone's going to be coming in uh, trying to justify or, you know, uh, find a way to expand or do something that they needed to do and do faster, you know, uh, cheaper, you know, all those things. And I think for for many CISOs, struggling, you know, kind of to keep all those forces at bay, kind of being the traffic controller, having all the planes land, it's a difficult job. And if you don't self-destruct or burn out your, yourself, um, the chances are that as the organization is going through those changes, they're going to grow tired of you or what you've been doing. And, and, and it really takes you, you know, the first part of that three-year cycle to kind of establish yourself, you know, you're going to have to get out there communicating and whatnot. And then through the rest of this uh, following couple of years, it's very, very hard to uh, gain the traction and have the long-term commitment and relationship with all the leaders that you need in order to have a sustained role in an organization. So you see a lot of CISOs uh, churning. Um, unfortunately, it's the, the way of the, you know, the way it's been for quite some time. Yeah, it's it's very interesting when I speak to um, people, and we're, we're going to get right into that here in just a moment, who are just wanting to get started in security. They go, what should I strive for? What should be my end result? And I'm like, anything but a CISO at this point. 
I go, and hopefully in 10, 15 years when you're ready, that conversation will be different. The role of the CISO will be far more established. It'll be similar to a CFO or a CIO or a CTO where, you know, the board and management understand, hey, we got to give this guy three to five years to really, you know, derive change in an organization and whatnot. Um, but but until that happens, you, you're, you're almost like, go be a vice president somewhere or SVP somewhere. You're probably going to have better job stability and security um, th- than you would um, any other way. Uh, it, it's absolutely true. I think you make an excellent point because I think it's it's twofold, right? Um, you're in the process of defining the role within that organization at the same time that the role is being defined, you know, primarily for the entire industry. You know, what a CISO is today is not what it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. In fact, most of the CISOs, quote unquote, back then were really networking infrastructure, um, senior folks that have kind of graduated through the ranks. And, and that was the, the first realm of uh, major responsibility, the firewalls, the protection of, of the websites, all that stuff. Uh, that's quite a bit different. I mean, today, that's, you know, only one very, very small sliver of all the work that you're doing, not to mention, you know, organizational transformation, communication, awareness, you know, yada, 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 all those things. So it is quite interesting. And I think it's it's that you're, you're doing two things or, or multiple things at the same time, establishing the role, establishing the role within the organization, and then kind of, you know, uh, blending in with all the other transformation that's going on in the industry. And it's changing so fast. And technology is adapting really, really, really fast. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, um, getting started and kind of, you know, building a security team. How how would you build your team or, or grow your team? What were some of the skills or personality traits you looked for in people you, you were looking to have become part of your security team? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because early on, I think, you know, I would go and interview folks for their um, background, their security background, their technology background, uh, you know, kind of what was their... Um, educational aspects, you know, what certifications they have and all that. And as I kind of, you know, was more in, in the, the role of CISO, I came down to one, and I don't want to oversimplify, but one key question, uh, and that was adaptability. And I think that that becomes the key barometer of not only for the CISO, but also for the individuals in your team, because there's only one thing you can be assured of, and that is that you don't know what's coming down the pike. And the folks that are going to be able to adapt to that change and be flexible are going to be the ones that are going to be successful and are going to be the ones that are going to be able to support the changing environment that you're going to have to kind of create. Yeah, I mean, adaptability, we see that right now with COVID, right? Yes. Um, you've got um, CISOs that are excelling, right? That are just really taken off. Um, you know, a shout out, um, someone I spoke with right when COVID started, uh, Max Garcia, he was the CISO at, at, at Revenue, um, I think uh, I forgot the, the name, Revenue uh, something. 
and now he's at NCR. Um, he, he just moved for, for CISO for NCR Financial Services, so congrats to Max. And, you know, he was saying, listen, we've built our entire IT and, and security program to be remote from the very beginning. He goes, the fact that we're now actually executing on it, he goes, we've been, we've spent everything so that people can work from anywhere. We never once wanted to limit a network or anything like that. And you saw the CISOs who had the traditional endpoint network in-house really, yeah. really struggle because they had desktops. They didn't even have laptops. And now all of a sudden you've got your people VPNing in on their own personal device into yeah. your corporate network. Um, adaptability was definitely something that uh, needed to be had right now. And, and certain people had it and others didn't. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I, I think back to some of the former companies that I was at and some of the biggest obstacles to, let's just pick that one area, remote work or work from home, you know, besides the cultural and the HR kind of matters, um, some of the biggest obstacles to having that happen were the, um, the the complainers, the whiners. I mean, whatever you did wasn't quite good enough to meet the litmus test of making it, you know, transparent, easy to use. You had difficulties with all these things, password resets. I mean, go, it goes on and on and on. So you were never able to kind of flip the switch to actually embrace that organizationally. And what I found totally amazing this year was when COVID hit, companies had to adapt and make that transformation. And all those wires, all the things that were not acceptable as far as, um, you know, uh, ease of use, complexity, all that went out the window or were accepted. And I think that that's kind of the the analogous behavior that you get from many organizations for not all the work, but some of the work that the CISO is actually advocating for, right? It's the same kind of, yeah, we're going to support you, but don't make it too difficult. Yeah, we're going to do what you say with respect to access, but we don't really want multi-factor. You know, whatever that is, there's always the yes, but, and how do you how do you get people to do it well now we know the answer you have some kind of a major event that causes people <laughs> to either survive and accept or uh you know end up getting consumed and, and it, it was interesting to see that unfold you know it, it's great that you bring up um adaptability and, and you, we talk a little bit about COVID, and i, I feel like covid has been um over talked i feel you know like it's been it's been you know, squeezed. If it was a wet rag, it's been squeezed, dried, squeezed again, dried, squeezed again, dried, squeezed again, and dried. And from a security perspective, you know, people talk about the new tomorrow, the new, the new, you know, the new buzzwords. Um, now that I get in my email, I've had to adjust my spam filter in my emails because a lot of the marketing stuff that I get now is the new tomorrow. And I'm like, there is no new tomorrow. There's no new reality. There is, you know, as humans, we adapt, right? If you don't adapt, you die. Like all things in the animal kingdom, like all things on planet Earth, right? Um, you adapt or you kind of wane off, you, you you go away. We look at a CISO's role right now, and it's been elevated in the enter enterprise. Uh, COVID has elevated the role of the CISO. 
I, I know multiple CISOs, and I don't know if, if, if you've had the same experience, you know, speaking with the community, but they're getting calls from their CEOs, not once a quarter, not once a month. It's it's once a week now. It's it's a half hour, an hour of the CEO's time to talk about, you know, remote work, the transformation, what are some of our risks and so forth. Have you seen the same thing? And then what? how would you leverage that now in order to elevate the role of the CISO? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I um, in my former roles, you know, at Mass Mutual and Boya and, and MetLife, probably to a lesser extent in MetLife, and I think it has more to do with how far back we go. Uh, but the more recent roles, uh, the role of CISO, at least for me, had been elevated. I had access to the CEO at Mass Mutual, um, you know, besides my direct report. At Voya, I actually had a dual reporting structure. I had a reporting structure that went through the technology head as well as the enterprise risk management head. So there was already a, a an acceptance of the significance and the importance of that role for many of those organizations. I think what was kind of interesting with COVID is that because the whole remote work was so, uh, I guess, uh, un anticipated in terms of a complete switch that I think everybody at first was saying, my gosh, are we going to be able to survive? It was almost like the hurricanes that you, you know, come up the Northeast. Are we going to be able to survive the flood levels, you know, in New York? You remember back when, when we had the whole uh, lower part of Manhattan, Wall Street and all that stuff um, flood. And, and there was instances where corporations had their data centers down on the lower floors. You know, I, I mean, crazy stuff that you wouldn't have imagined uh, taking place. So I think the the CEOs really were, I think, probably for the first time realizing uh, in the cases where they hadn't had that relationship that they needed to get close to this individual, whoever that might have been in their organization, to make sure that now that they weathered the remote work from home aspect, what else might there be lurking or perhaps out there? which, you know, is great. But I think to your second question, you know, what is it that you do now that you've got the attention, right? right. Uh, I think for many CISOs, it has to be about being relevant to the business in terms of innovation and transformation. Because if it becomes about the next um, big uh, catastrophe or the next big, you know, um, you know, uh, technology snafu, uh, you're going to lose the, not only the CEO's interest, but most of the uh, senior management's interest. So it's got to be about where where is the company going and how is the work that the CISO and their organization, how is that tied and connected and actually pulling in the same direction as the rest of the company? For many, keep in mind, because the CISO is almost all, almost always been kind of the hurdle, the police, the, the, the inhibitor, the, the safety net. They've always uh, kind of not been necessarily included in a lot of those plans. So I would say to you know, any of the CISOs that if, if, if now is the time that you're getting those conversations to happen, um, take advantage of it, but make sure that you become and continue to be relevant with respect to what's going on. And for, for some, that means you got to get educated on what the whole business aspect is that you may not have taken an interest in before. 
that's such a good point because so so many times we see this um, as kind of being a, a dropped opportunity, and now now it's time for for prime time, as one would say. It's yeah. it's it's really prime time. Um, we're, we're we're right there. This is our opportunity. Um, you know, you, you're a board advisor, and, and you sit on multiple boards, and so. Um, and, and you've reported to a bunch of boards, obviously, and in and, and, and very big organizations. What's what's kind of like one thing that before a CISA walks into a room to brief a board that the board is looking at or talking about um, before a secured before a CISA walks in? I, I think that uh, for, for many uh, boards, you know, that I've uh, spoken at and, and actually afterwards, you know, speaking with a number of the board members, it always comes down to, um, because you keep in mind, it, it, at least the CISO in many roles, is it's a very uh, narrow window, once a quarter, uh, if you're lucky, or, one, or twice a year, or maybe only once a year, which means that the very first time, you've got an incredible responsibility to not only convey whatever the message is about the program that you've got, but you've got to earn the trust or at least set up the, 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 the discussion such that the folks in the organization um, can believe what you're saying. Because for many board members, it becomes about, can I believe the CISO? Can I trust that they're doing what they need to be doing? And most importantly, how do I know if they are and how do I know if they're not? So uh, I think for many systems that that um, critical uh, junction uh, becomes a, a very, very uh, telling sign as to whether or not the board is going to then believe and accept everything that you're saying about where the program is, why you need to make a change left, change right, um, and everything else co comes on the heel of that. So it, it's kind of critical that that, that conversation uh, comes off very well and incredible. Oftentimes, you know, when, when you speak to boards, you've got predominantly, I'd say, you know, in the, in the, I work a lot with startups. So the boards that I talk to are predominantly a lot of times private investors or VCs. Um, and with VCs, I don't see the same conversations from a board level, from a question yeah. perspective, like I do from private investors. Yeah. Yeah. Two, yeah. Very, two very, very different conversations. I think that's the maturity of, you know, the makeup of a board. Yeah, and, and I mean, with VC type, uh, you know, startups, uh, it's basically, you know, they're looking at the watch saying, okay, what have you done for me lately? How are we making the change? Um, you know, cost becomes a, a critical factor um, where, you know, when you get to a more established board, it, it really comes down to, you know, uh, reputational uh, considerations. You know, what are we going to do for the longevity of the reputation of the firm, stakeholders, all that. The you know is the CISO doing everything not only to protect the company, the stakeholders, shareholders, uh, but the board, you know, and the CEO. Um, are you know, and 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 you see when it when it goes wrong, 
you know, the hunt is for the scapegoat, you know, who, who, who didn't do what they should have done that now has created, you know, whatever um, uh, terrible situation may have occurred, whether it was a data loss situation or patching, you know, failed patching situation. Um, and, then, and then you have the, uh, the, the scapegoat, you know, so, so it's typically number one, followed by the whoever, whoever the CIO, in many cases, whoever the CIO is, uh, is number two. Uh, and then if, if it's really serious, then the CEO. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw that with Equifax, right? It was the yeah, CISO yeah. first, then it was the CIO, and it was the CEO. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And 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 look at what happened afterwards when Jamie came, came in there and and basically, you know, I mean, I I don't think I I would have stepped into that role, but my God, what um, what a transformation he made uh, by coming in and 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 connecting not only with the board, winning their trust. But taking it upon and 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 really spearheading a whole awareness uh, effort to transform the cultural aspect of a firm, um, which is really you know in, in some respects what a good CISO uh, needs to do. It's, it it all becomes about being that advocate for change, for for transformation, and being that spokesperson for doing all the things that need to be done. Well, I think it's being able to win people within the organization and start to look at security as an enabler rather than a no, right? right? And and when you sit in a meeting, I think one of the things I learned very quickly is when you're sitting in a meeting, never say no. Just say, tell me what you want to do. I'll find a way to make it happen, right? But just tell me what you want to do and why you want to do it. And if I understand the, you know, what you want to do and why you want to do it and the, then I'll find a way to make it secure. Right. Yeah. There's always yeah. a way to build security controls around anything you do. Yeah. And I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think that where that becomes a little bit of a rub is when you have a CISO then who steps into that and takes on more of the design or architectural aspects of what needs to be done, then they're going to step on toes. So so it's a delicate balance between tell me what needs to be done. And then I'm going to define the parameters by which you can do that, but stopping short of designing the approach. Because, you know, it's like anything else. The technology folks, the infrastructure folks, the application folks don't necessarily want the CISO coming in and saying, this is how you're going to design it. So so it is a little bit of a delicate balance between, you know, um, getting people to trust you that you're going to provide the parameters or the framework for what needs to be done but you're not going to step in there and say, step aside, let me show you what needs to be done, code it this way or design it that way or architect the network this way. Um, in some cases, you need to be prescriptive, but it is a delicate balance. It, it, it's a really delicate balance and it's a very, um, it, it's all about the relationship, right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? And, it's, and, it's, and it's that relationship and those relationships always tend to come in handy in situations like that, right? A lot of times you don't even, you know, one thing I learned from from another CISO um, was don't call out the people in a meeting. Do the meeting, hear everything in, absorb the information, take them out to lunch, talk to them, throw out some ideas, 
watch them adopt them, take it back and go, here's a better way for us to do this. Here's a way for us to cut down our development life cycle. Don't look for the credit yourself sometimes. Let someone else take a credit for your idea because that's how you achieve security. And then in turn, that's how you achieve kind of peace and tranquility within your own role when when you don't have to deal with putting out fires. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that the really successful CISOs uh, are ones that are not ruling with an iron fist or, you know, a dictatorial kind of uh, approach on this is what needs to be done and this is what doesn't or can't be done, but more through um, influence, conversion, um, winning people over. And, and, and you're right. And, and, you know, and it's, it's sometimes easier said than done because, you know, when you're in the hot seat and everyone is basically pushing at all different sides, it's sometimes very difficult to have the wherewithal to know that you got to step back and have that side conversation and do the influencing part. You know, um, there have been times, I mean, I, I hate to admit it, but there have been times where, <laughs> you know, in the middle of a meeting, I said, no, hell, I'm <laughs> doing it that way. That's just not going to happen. Um, but those were few. Um, and, and I learned from those and probably ended up having to apologize and, <laughs> and, and back away from that. But, but it's, it, you, you get in the moment and um, I can see where, you know, it is difficult. And I think, you know, for, for CISOs, especially starting out, don't think that you're going to walk into a room and have the wherewithal to, you know, the wisdom, the expertise and all that to have a very calm demeanor, et cetera, et cetera, and be able to take all the arrows and not lose your cool. That's not going to happen. If it is, you know, my hat's off to them because the, the, you know, it's, I've struggled with it. It's hard. Well, it, it, you bring up a really good point, which is kind of that, that inner office politics, the, the, you know, the game of who has more influence in an organization, right? Sure. The infrastructure architecture guys, the DevOps people, the technology people, the marketing, the business folk, like, and it's it's a constant kind of battle of powers and of the willing. And a lot of times you find yourself, you find security being um, caught in the middle of a bunch of politics where security just sits there and, and it's, it's, it's just a lame duck. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and, and I've gone through this myself um, where I've insisted on having the security architect report to me, um, you know, only to find that a better application uh, or structure is having the security architect within the architecture team and the infrastructure organization, but having them Dotted it back into the CISO or having them, you know, tied in some way so that their comp and, and so forth else is influenced by that, but not necessarily tied to the CISO. So, you know, the ideal, you know, which is kind of counterintuitive, the ideal CISO is one that influences everybody and doesn't necessarily have to get his or her hands dirty with all the <laughs> politics that have to go on uh, that would be the idea you know if you could sit there and basically have the right uh architecture you know framework the policies you know the compliance requirements etc cetera, etc cetera, and have 
as few people reporting to you as possible, um, you'd be a happy person. Yeah, that would be like the ultimate role, right? That would be that would be being, you know, Tom Brady. Tom Brady's about to find out this year very, very hard uh, what it's like to not play on a Bill Belichick team. Um, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, it feels like uh, I'm a Niners fan, and it feels like when Joe Montana um, left the 49ers to go to the Chiefs, I, I have a very, very eerie feeling that this is going to be Tom Brady's. Kansas City Chiefs. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens this year with that. <laughs> um, you know, when you you cut, let's look at a little bit about aspects of security. Um, you've been through a bunch of different in your different roles. You went through a bunch of different digital transformations, but you were predominantly in the insurance industry, which, um, but by all means of of a situation, is an industry that's keen to uh, several types of different kind of cyber incidents, right? The non-cyber social engineering side of it is, you know, the traditional insurance fraud, the, you know, fake claims, the whatnot, but then the, um, the, the type of cyber incidents we do see with a lot of insurance companies is the fake digital claims being made by threat actors in order to, to get money out of those companies, um, steal data, uh, steal the policy information, um, so that they know, you know, hey, all these companies have this X amount of dollars. We're going to go attack them with this, asking for this amount of dollars in ransom because we know they'll pay it because that's what their insurance will cover, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you start to navigate those? How did you start to navigate those threat factors and identify those? And, and what kind of technologies did you look at from a uh, not from a vendor perspective, but rather from a from an internal perspective to, to solve those issues? Yeah, so, so you bring up an excellent point. I think, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, in the role of a CISO, you, you think that you're going to be able to put the, the blanket or put the, the wrap, the ring fence around everything to protect it. So you're going to do the awareness campaign, you're going to do the multi-factor, you're going to do the secure websites, you're going to do all that stuff. Um, to secure the communications. But what was really interesting, you know, and it, this happened at, at several companies, I, you know, I won't go into specifics for any one, but, but what was really interesting is that the threat actors, um, you know, that were really motivated on, you know, financial uh, gain uh, by perpetrating, you know, whatever they were gonna do in terms of impersonation, et cetera, et cetera they stopped directing their attacks at the corporate infrastructure. So oftentimes what would happen is we would lock down the uh, access with the websites. We would have multi-factor. We would have all these things in place um, and we'd have logging to be able to get geo tracking on where people are coming from, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, the main focus for those threat actors was the individuals, the, the, the consumers, and getting them uh, doing something to impersonate them or getting them to click on something where they now can uh, assume control of that account. And once you have the account, you know, their Gmail account or whatever the account is, now you can perpetrate 
just about anything because now you can see what kind of communications they had with your advisor. You can see, you know, possibly even do some keystroke logging and whatnot, capture their passwords. You can get all kinds of information, which now becomes very, very difficult to detect and protect at the back end because now the, the, the crime, if you will, is basically um, now, unless you put in all kinds of hoops and obstacles on the back end, you know, are you really, really, you know, James, are you really, you know, unless you do all kinds of stuff on the back end, it, it, it would become um, transactions of fraudulent amounts up to, you know, uh, small things, you know, 10,000, 20,000, things that were not that significant that would typically get covered. Um, but were causing more and more fraud. I think for me, one of the most uh, eye-opening things was that for a while, my role as CISO uh, actually uh, was more consumed with fraud and fraud prevention than it was with infrastructural components to prevent, thwart, detect, and respond to cyber threats, which is you know, you wouldn't think that would be the case, but because the threat actors found the least, um, you know, uh, uh, vulnerable or, the, you know, the, the thing that they could attack and, and basically um, usurp, that's that's what they went after. Uh, and it wasn't until much later where we ended up, you know, I don't think many organizations now banking, I think was probably the lead one where you had the text back, you know, the verification, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, easy to use, easy to employ, multi-factor. And now even some of the other firms, I think Fidelity and a couple of others are using voice uh, recognition, biometrics, et cetera, et cetera, which makes it very, very difficult to impersonate the consumer. But impersonation of the consumer was a number one to all of the cyber crime we were getting. It was almost like a, a 10 to 20 to 1 um, in terms of that type of crime versus somebody actually trying to come in our front door, trying to access uh, data on a back end. So you brought up a very interesting point, which I think is a very, very uh, important debate to be had nowadays. Should fraud be under the title of the CISO? Should fraud be an entire category under the CISO? Because a lot of times fraud's under the CFO or somewhere along you know, the, the financial or business team and it has some crossover with IT and security, but typically the crossover is, hey, we're investigating this. We need the IT logs for this. And by the way, explain what we're looking at because we don't know what we're looking at. Um, and we talk now about fraud and um, it seems like more and more, especially in financial services and fintech and insurance where fraud really should just be under the office of the CISO. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and I'll give you a, a really good example, James, of why uh, that convergence is so important. And, and I, again, I won't name firms, but it actually happened. No, at, no, that's at, fine. And, and no one expects you to name firms on the Sister Talk podcast. We are all about discretion. We know the Russians and the Chinese watch and listen, right? We right. try to limit them, but they still VPN their way in. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, um, but with respect to fraud, um, there was a significant amount of fraud where, where the 
the uh, threat actors had had found a, a vulnerable uh, way to get at the customer base. And they were using all these various techniques and we were involved with, um, you know, uh, treasury, we were involved with all kinds of folks. And because it was fraud, it actually did not report into me. It was actually uh, into the, and, and in this case, it reported into the physical security person. Um, it was a very, very talented individual, uh, former FBI individual, uh, had a lot of connections. But what was interesting is that in order to, um, at least the thought was, in order to really prevent all the fraud that was happening, and it was you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses that were occurring and were ratcheting up, there was an investment request made to deploy uh, Pindrum. Um, technology, very, very uh, good technology to be able to detect um, characteristics of the call and be able to differentiate, you know, uh, fraudulent calls from non-fraudulent calls, et cetera, et cetera. The point wasn't really about the particular technology or even deploying it. The issue was that where this was reporting and being addressed, they had no budget to actually deploy that technology. So what ended up happening was there was a major push to get the security guy, namely me, to subscribe <laughs> and fund this thing that was going on at, at a cost of multiple millions of dollars. And it wasn't that I was against doing it, but the reality was that instead of stepping back from the scenario and saying, look, what we really need to do is re-architect how the whole customer experience works with respect to, you know, uh, requisitioning uh, cash withdrawals uh, from our, you know, whatever uh, uh, investment accounts. Rather than redesigning that, the thought was that we were going to deploy this technology and that was going to be the mechanism by which you were going to thwart all this fraud that was happening, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, for me, it became about spending Three million dollars against a loss of three hundred thousand um, in that particular case, and I kept making the point: "Well, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense to do that. This is what we need to do." So I think having that converge, my point is, um, allows us to better evaluate what the risk uh, reward opportunity is, and in some cases, it may be as simple as making the investment in a technology. In other cases, it might be going back to the business, customer services, customer support, and saying, hey, our processes are not working. Here's the vulnerable points where they don't need to put in a pin or they can simply impersonate somebody with voice. Um, and, and this is what we need to do in order to thwart that. That wasn't easily done. And there was a lot of uh, frustration on a lot of people's part trying to address that issue. Yeah, it's, it's, you bring up so many good points there. I mean, so many. If, if we just look at one of the things you said, where you talk about a $300,000 cost versus, you know, preventing $300,000 worth of fraud a year, but investing $3 million to prevent 300000 is that really effective? And that's where kind of 
you know, building additional security controls. And that's why having fraud under security is so critical and not having it be a cross business function. And, you know, it's almost like the CISA role can no longer be siloed. It's got to be across the organization, very similar to like a CFO role or a, a, a COO role where you're across the entire org and you've got tentacles, you're an octopus and you've got tentacles in every single business unit of, of the company. And that's maybe the only way um, you'll be able to really um, succeed um, in, in kind of getting all of that kind of under the CISO and the office of the CISO over a period of time. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I think there's a lot of arguments that have been made about trying to bring, you know, convergence of physical security and, you know, uh, digital security, bringing that together, or cybersecurity, bringing that together, fraud, uh, fraud, fraud prevention, you know, certainly, you know, even to some extent, uh, extent, even some elements of compliance. The difficulty, right, is as, as you can imagine, and, and having been a CISO yourself, you, you know, it, the more of those uh, pieces that come underneath the CISO, the broader that responsibility is, which is good on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, um, it, it's it's tough to keep all those plates afloat. And that means you need to have, you know, the right, you know, organizational structure to really manage that effectively. And, and, and that is, I think, the crossroads that we're at for many uh, organizations. It's about the CISO kind of evolving from the cyber uh, czar, you know, role to that, you know, more encompassing, you know, uh, enterprise role and and elements uh, across the enterprise rolling under the CISO. And I think that is a probably the the last major change that will need to take place before you see, I think, the CISO coming out from either. Um, the technology out from underneath the CIO or out from underneath the COO or out from whoever and really looking at things more holistically, uh, either reporting to the board or reporting in directly to the CEO. Um, I think that's ultimately what will help solve that. You know, but- If we get rid of the I in CISO, we solve, I think, 50% of the problem. Because the I in the CISO stands for information, and that's yeah. where we're siloed. We're siloed under information, yeah. and yeah. and and I oftentimes look at that and I go, "Well, we're we're beyond information, right?" I know CISOs. Um, you know, we're talking about David Levin, um, the the CSO at Rico, who's been a guest on the show. He's the CSO. He's in charge of physical security and information security and cybersecurity, and in fact. Um, in another podcast that I'm launching very soon called The Other Side of Cyber with my very good friend JJ, um, our second episode talks all about what is the definition of cyber. And, you know, we compare cyber to a tree and information security being a branch of that tree and data security and data privacy all being different branches of and even physical security being part of a branch of that tree, uh, because especially now with COVID. Physical security now with COVID, with the social unrest that's going on, um, physical security has now been, you know, I can tell you in in some of the cases, I've been called for physical security issues. Um, 
in terms of securing executives' homes, uh, securing devices, um, different things that, you know, in, in an office, I've got a key card, I've got a key lock. In my home, I don't necessarily always lock my office. I don't always lock my drawers. I don't always close my window. And I create a whole new threat vector um, that goes back to the old days of a spy stealing your server. Like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you you were more concerned with someone breaking into your server farm, into your office and stealing your servers than you were if someone, you know, cyber attacking them and and stealing that data. Right, 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 right. Right. And, and think about it. Right. So the perimeter, I mean, and, you know, I remember having these conversations with some of the state regulators uh, that, you know, we have defense in depth. Right. So uh, the servers are behind the data center, the, you know, the, um, you know, the cage, the, the walls, all the different controls, cameras, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now you've got devices that you've essentially extended out beyond your physical perimeter, beyond you know, to whatever house, you know, your house, right. my house, et cetera, et cetera. Now I just need to do some social engineering, figure out what I want to get, who most likely has it. And now I'm targeting their house, just like you said, getting that device more than likely, maybe the device doesn't lock. Or if it does, I, I look for another way to compromise it, but at least I have a physical asset, which Ordinarily, I wouldn't have had, had it been behind corporate you know, doors, et cetera, et cetera. And, or even if I did have it, I wouldn't have had the same access. So, so you know, I mean, it, 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 it taxes that uh, security in a way that for many people, I don't think they, they completely anticipated or fully understood that. I don't think we've seen the full impact of what COVID will do as far as cyber and physical uh, security transformation. I don't yet. think yet. 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 Right. Yet. yet. I, I will say this. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, you bring up a really good point, which is we take two steps forward. We come back one step. Um, so, so kind of staying on that same theme here. Um, what are you seeing the security industry do better at now than before? Like what? What is one problem that you say we've solved this? Like the technology's out there, everything's out there. We're doing this really well. It's just a matter of configuration and implementation. Let's focus on other stuff. What's that one thing you think that we're doing well, in your opinion? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the number one thing that is significantly different, at least for many CISOs, is that there's a lot more collaboration and cooperation with respect to techniques methods, uh, approaches to thwart different things. And people are more willing to be vulnerable to share their ideas uh, in hopes that not only can they help someone else, but more importantly, even that someone else shares equally and they can benefit from it. So uh, with remote technology, I think one of the things that is really, um, you know, multi-factor, I think, and, and, and the whole concept of multi-factor zero trust and, 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 and access, I think, in general, has really uh, come light years ahead of where, where we used to be. So there's a lot of very, very significant focus on that. I think there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of good work done to uh, elevate uh, the programs and, and, and the access methods by which people um, get control or, or visibility to corporate data. And I think that's come a long, long way. 
um, more more still to come. But I think that's that's definitely uh, a thing that uh, I think is uh, uh, improved quite a bit. I think we're still struggling with what happens with cloud, um, despite all the right. uh, things that have taken place. I think you know cloud, cloud. Where's the cloud, and where's my data, and how do I uh, contain that? I, I think it, it's not so much about the cloud, but it's basically the loss of control and the permutation of all that data. Uh, out to so many devices and not being able to put a ring fence around that. So some kind of digital rights management, some kind of way to, to manage data from creation to destruction and, and ensuring that only those individuals that are authorized to access it can access it. I think that's probably the next major frontier that, that would really need to really be solidified. I think we have bits and pieces of that but I don't know that we have it completely nailed down. Yeah, it, it's we still have some. I, I like MFA. I'm personally I'm against MFA as a text messaging option yeah. because of SIM swapping attacks, and we saw that with the Twitter um, um, yeah. with the Twitter incident last last week, where it was essentially a SIM swapping incident. I'm all for multi-factor authentication on authentication apps on your device. Um, which at least that way you can control and microsoft has great authentication yeah. google has great authentication fantastic capability right. very transportable right both can be used across multiple platforms so do a lot of the um endpoint um edr providers and av providers they all have some sort of authentication app at this point um that, the that really so the difficulty with those right um you know being a little more senior than you um <laughs> but still somewhat technical and being able to deal with this, the, the challenge is you've got so many individuals now where, especially, you know, dealing with their financial savings, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see that the folks that are, you know, at, you know, let's say 70 or older are going to be able to deal with those kinds of authentication apps and so forth. So I think we're still going to have a challenge in terms of how, how easily can you uh, employ those capabilities that provide the protections that I think we all agree are robust enough to thwart the, the, the attacks that, that have happened in the past. It's basically about adoption of that capability. And, and, and we have a gap because there's probably some of the boomers, you know, through 65, 70, probably very competent, very capable, very comfortable using those uh, apps, using, you know, their iPhones, using the app store and all that stuff. But not everybody is. Well, I mean, and, and you bring up a really good point here. And that point to me is solved by like how we have data classification, data segmentation. We do the same with our users. So we create user segmentation where we go, hey, if it's anyone between the ages of like, let's say 18 to 40, we know that these people are savvier. They all have smartphones the smartphone adoption right there is 100 percent. these people all know how to use apps and so you can employ that technology with those people effectively without creating any deviation because there's no deviation right. whereas then as you start to look at the older population you start to look and segment your users and then create uh, uh levels of of you know redundancy so that you're able to serve those customers easily i i know you know i still know people uh, I was in Israel for a month. 
came back a few weeks ago and I I went to Israel. One of our DevOps team was in Israel and I had to do a two-week quarantine. And then for two weeks, I was free, man, alive and well and, and enjoying the beach and enjoying the, the awesome food and beautiful people of Israel. And in um, one of the very interesting things is, is because I still have I, I'm an Israeli citizen as well as a U.S. citizen. Um, and so when I went to do several specific things within the Israeli government, they very much had it segmented. So because of my age, I could do way more things online. But for example, other people I know in Israel who are in their 60s and 70s, they still have a phone number they call. They still get services by going to the local office. And and the government there had um, hours during COVID that were strictly for people in the risk group of COVID. So no one below that age group could enter and and be served in those by those government agencies in those time frames because those people predominantly come to it and that's in in fact and in banking in Israel one of my very good friends in Israel is runs a branch of one of the banks and I was asking him I go well who comes into your branch and he goes it's predominantly people over the age of 50 yeah he goes those people still walk to the branch they don't go to the ATM they want to walk up to a teller. They want to fill a form. They want to sign it. They want to see someone count the money in front of them. And they want to put it in an envelope, stuff it in their bags, and walk out. Yeah. No no app deposit uh, um, to, 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 uh, for their checks. Right. right. And yeah. so it, it, it's, it's very interesting to see that. Whereas in like here, you know, my Chase Bank now, you know, there, there's no teller to talk to. I've right. got a self-service machine. Yeah. Right, the only people that are in there are trying to sell me something—a mortgage, <laughs> an investment, a four hundred one k, whatever. But but no one's really. But but I think I think this whole conversation really kind of underscores the um, the challenge that I think you know, at least in the financial sector, and it's probably going to be the case in many other sectors as well. I mean, you got telehealth going on, and, and how do you deal with that? How do you do that in a secure way? Um, you know, some uh, elderly are not going to be able to necessarily use it. So, so we've got to come up with ways that you can uh, consume or leverage or, or you know, make use of the technology in a way that suits who you are and what you're comfortable doing. And I think that that is going to be uh, the next big, big um, challenge for us, especially in the whole world of cyber, because it'd be nice to say, hey, you know, use uh, this app or this thing or whatever and, and we solve the access and identification and personation issue uh, but it's not going to be that easy yeah so before we go to our CISO insight round here folks and we get to the fun uh, uh, part of this interview where we get to know Laz a little bit uh, deeper one of a few things before we, we, we go there one um, um, Laz, who was a CISO in residence for uh, Mary Lou Hastings of Executive Alliance. Mary Lou does have, uh, Mary Lou did suffer a, a, a terrible, uh, uh, very difficult stroke um, about three, four months ago, um, yeah. right at the height of COVID. Um, unfortunately, Executive Alliance is now being kind of taken apart, sold off, but there is a fundraiser for her. The link is at the bottom of this video. So if you're watching on YouTube, the link to her fundraiser is at the bottom of this video. If you're listening on our audio platforms, the link is right there. It's ran by her son. Um, 
Um, Mary Lou has had an impact on a lot of people in our industry. So if you can uh, find it in your heart to just um, um, help out anyway financially, the, the family's going through a lot. There's uh, a lot of um, you know uh, money that needs to go into her long-term care. And so please do so. I know that uh, Laz was very involved with Executive Alliance for, for uh, a period of time. And so uh, with that being said, before we go to the next part, just as kind of a, a little thing, I, 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 have, I do have her link right here on the bottom. Uh, so, so please go and, 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 and just donate anything you can um, uh, to help out would be uh, greatly appreciated by the family. And I know that Mary Lou would uh, just smile her bright light uh, cool. to, to anyone who does that um, right now. And we wish Mary Lou uh, a, a quick and fast recovery and, um, and, and, and seeing you on the lake very, very soon um, in your boat. <laughs> um, so with that being said, folks, um, we're going to go into our CISO Insight round. It's, it's um, Laz, this is our, our, our favorite part of the show. Um, six questions. Get to answer one word or less. Um, you only get to expand if I ask you to. So okay. here we go. Fire round. Um, one buzzword you would bury in the buzzword graveyard. Big data. Big data. Um, that's, that's, I think, number three for big data. Um, one technology... Um, or technology advancement that will change the way we do cybersecurity? I think remote work. Remote work. Um, What's the book you're reading right now or last book you read? Not a big reader, but the book I actually have uh, uh, started to go through is called Reboot by Phil Burgess. Awesome. uh, The last movie you saw? Oh, Greyhound. Tom Hanks. Greyhound Tom Hanks. So your favorite type of music, what do you listen to typically? Soft rock. Soft rock. Got a favorite song? No, I I, I just, you know, not not a big uh, music buff. I, they all come in, they're all got scrambled around. It's that seat ahead of mine. <laughs> awesome. And one thing you took away from the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, I think... Uh, how precious life is and how easy it can be for us to lose sight of that. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much to Laz for being on the show. Um, You can find all of our episodes at cyberhubpodcast.com. If you're listening right now, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, comment. You can reach out to Laz or myself on LinkedIn. Look us up. Our names are right now on the screen in front of you. Or if you're listening, they're in the description and I'll put our LinkedIn links right in the description box. All you got to do is just click there. It'll open right into your app. You can hit connect and make sure you let Laz know. I heard you on CISO Talk. So that way he knows you're, you're connecting if you haven't done that way and he'll accept your connection. Some people won't accept connections. Um, or you get the connections and then you get spammed. So if you connect with either one of us and your first email is um, check out my great uh, revolutionizing cyber technology, um, I'll, I'll mute you. That's right. <laughs> I, I will mute. Um, please um, you, you use this to to interact and learn and, and you know, build relationships because that's how, how this world rotates based on relationships. I'm at last two years ago in beautiful Washington, D.C. Um, he shared a few words with me that until today resonated, uh, that until today resonate. Don't focus on anything. Focus on your program. Build it up um, and and everything else will fall into place. And that's been my my true guiding star in, in 
my most recent CISO role. So I, I greatly appreciate it, folks. Um, Laz, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, James. It was a real pleasure. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's great to have you connect uh, so many of us together. So appreciate it. And it was uh, really good to be here. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, folks. So again, make sure you subscribe. and.